podcast where we explore the scriptures and uh, times they've become real to us and ways that they've applied to our life and made a difference in our life. And we're excited today uh, to have uh, a, a wonderful guest. So I, I'm uh, your, your host, Carrie Mulestein, but today we have with us Rebecca Call. And uh, this is actually going to be a, a fantastic interview. I'm really looking forward to it, but it's going to be a little bit different in that uh, I've actually already interviewed Rebecca and we had a fantastic discussion. And some of that uh, has to do with Abraham and uh, we covered a lot of material. Uh, but so in the, the series, uh, we'll release that one a little bit later because uh, about when we get to Abraham and come follow me again, we're not trying to necessarily cover all the come follow me topics, but we thought we might as well as release topics in an order that worked with come follow me. Um, but as we did that interview, uh, Rebecca talked to us about her dissertation topic, and that is a topic that I think works really well as we're getting into the fall on Adam and Eve. So we'll do this one before that one. Uh, and so you'll get to hear uh, uh, and learn about Rebecca twice, but I'm excited to have Rebecca with us. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Carrie. I'm really happy to be here. So would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, and uh, the people can relearn a little bit more if they listen to that second episode, which I highly recommend. It was fantastic uh, stuff that, that Rebecca shared with us. Sure. So I'm Rebecca Call. I am a PhD candidate um, at Claremont Graduate University, which is in Southern California, about 40 miles east of Los Angeles. So, and, and, and maybe am, just for uh, those who uh, don't understand what a candidate is, because some people hear PhD candidate and they think, oh, they're maybe going to get into a PhD program, but it's actually kind of the opposite of that. So would you explain what that means to be at the candidate status? Yeah. So a PhD candidate is someone who has passed their comprehensive exams, which means they've taken all their coursework, they've chosen their specialties, and and the only thing that's left is for them to write their dissertation, which is basically like a book. Yeah. and to defend it in order to graduate. So I've done everything except for finishing the dissertation. I'm in the middle right now of writing my dissertation. Which is a fantastic place to be, although it's a lot of work. Uh, it's also often referred to as ABD, as all, all but dissertation. I remember one time, the first time I met uh, Janet Skinner, Andrew Skinner's wife, and uh, I was ABD at the time. And she said to my wife, I, I was there listening, but uh, she said to my wife, I used to think, oh, ABD, that's so exciting. And then I learned that's like all but the all of the earth, but the ocean. Um, so uh, it's, uh, that dissertation is a chunk of work. It's more than it's like a book, but it's more work than writing a book. You have to cover, uh, you know, when I turned mine into a book, I could cut out huge sections of stuff that no one really cared about, but you have to have in a dissertation and uh, it has to have so many footnotes and so many stages and processes. And And you're well along in yours. It's uh, You have such an exciting career already and, and uh, I look forward to great things, but uh, good for you for being so far along and doing such great stuff. Thank you. Now I interrupted your, your introduction though. You can tell us a little bit more. Sorry. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm a PhD candidate at Claremont Graduate University, and uh, my field is in the field of religious studies, which studies religion at large, religion as a category. So we're looking at how religions develop, how they change, sociological patterns, anthropological, um, you know, any, any sort of way that you come and look at religions as a movement. Um, but I myself specialize in textual analysis of the Hebrew Bible. And then I minor in Mormon studies, but my, my main area of expertise is Hebrew Bible analysis. 
That's just such a fun niche to be in. I mean, that's just great stuff. I think it's really exciting. Yeah. yeah. And so my dissertation is in Hebrew Bible. And I am looking at, in Genesis, in the creation account, uh, it says, after God has created the human, says it is not good for the human or the man to be alone. Let us make a help meet for him. And help meet, this phrase, is what I'm looking at. Uh, I'm looking at it in the, in the Hebrew, of course, and trying to understand, uh, because this phrase gets used a lot as kind of a touchstone for understanding gender roles and what's Eve's relationship to Adam and then to God and what's Adam's relationship to Eve and to God. Um, but as I've been looking at the research, nobody has done a deep linguistic study of this phrase, even though grammatically the Hebrew is weird. Yeah. Uh, the way it's combined together, the words, the way they're put together is strange, and but nobody's taken a very deep look at it. So that's what I'm doing. From wonderful. And that's what we want to talk to you about today. So that's 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 great. Uh, I'll also mention a, a oh, maybe you, now I can't remember whether you mentioned it this time or last time, but I think you didn't mention that you studied in uh, Jerusalem at the Hebrew University, right, uh, for a while. And um, it just have uh, done all sorts of interesting things. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to thank Rebecca. She's made uh, time for us. So th- this is, we're like midway between Christmas and New Year's Day right now. And, uh, but I just, it just occurred to me, uh, we talked earlier about, let's, let's interview on that topic. And then I thought, oh, we're coming up. It won't be very long until we are hitting uh, Adam and Eve. Uh, we, we start the Old Testament, come follow me, even before January 1st. We've done a week of it by the time we get to January 2nd. So um, so this is kind of happening quickly. And I thought, oh, we better do this. And, and even though Rebecca is on her, her Christmas break from school, and I think you're in your, your, at your brother's house, is that right? And uh, uh, she's been willing to meet with us. And uh, we're happy that uh, her nieces and nephews will uh, lend her to us for a little while. And we hope they'll come say hi in the middle or something. That would be nice because I, I know they love you. But, uh, but anyway, thank you for making time with us uh, to meet with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So why don't you just tell us uh, what what are some of the the more interesting things? And maybe I'll start out by saying that historically, at least in in my view, and I haven't done a deep study of this, but historically that term, uh, which you'll introduce to us in Hebrew, Ezra Kinegdo, uh, or Kinegdo, you can, uh, I, sometimes I forget to do the schwa correctly there. But anyway, um, it uh, historically, sometimes I think it's been weaponized against women. Um, and I, I think incorrectly so with an incorrect understanding. And, uh, and I assume that you're going to help us understand the real meaning of the term a little bit better. Um, so yes, I think you're absolutely right. The historically, this phrase and really historically, the entire creation and fall narrative has been used, uh, for hundreds of years to kind of vilify women Yeah, and giving this idea that women are meant to be subservient to men and because you know women are innately evil and innately weaker and prone to do to, to sin that thereby male domination is justified uh, yeah. and in god's way which uh this is one of the things that's kind of bothered me about the historical interpretation of the narrative and has kind of driven me to dive deeper into this phrase um, and and uh, maybe I can just uh, interrupt and say, uh, this is one of the times where I'm so grateful to be a, a member of the Restored Gospel or the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where 
we'll get and and we'll cover the fall in a different episode, but uh, or probably by the time we post this, we will have already covered it. But um, where we can have someone like President Oaks who says, uh, you know, despite what other religions have, have thought of Eve and her daughters, we we glorify Eve and her daughters for her choice, and that is so different from the rest of of Christianity. I'm just so grateful for that restored uh, view of that. Yes. Yes. And so, and naturally that makes part of my backdrop in approaching the text is that I wanted to look at the, this text that has been used somewhat less in more recent years, because I think people are moving away from that, but for many centuries had been used as a way to vilify women. Um, And so what I've, what I've done is realizing that we have almost no ancient Hebrew writings outside of the Hebrew Bible. Um, we there are, we have a few inscriptions, but we really don't have a lot of early Hebrew writings. Right. So unlike the New Testament, where there we have many many Greek documents that we can reference if we want to give outside context, the Hebrew Bible doesn't give us that. And so what I've done is what's called an intertextual approach, where I have not assumed I can give evidence, a lot of evidence that the books in the Hebrew Bible, even though they've been written over a a span of centuries. So there's a lot of different language usages within this, what we, what we consider to be one book. Um, so there's this huge span. However, they're in conversation with each other. We find thematic elements, we find narrative elements, even times where you find the structure of a narrative and you find, you know, like for example, the narrative surrounding Michal and David. Um, Michal is David's first wife, the daughter of Saul has some really, really striking parallels with the story of Rachel and Jacob and, and, and Leah and Michal's older brother or older sister, sorry, Merav, who was originally supposed to marry David. And so, and that could be a conversation for another time, but the number of parallels, when I first started seeing them, I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I put them together into a spreadsheet and it's like 25 or 30 narrative elements that are the same which then highlights the ones that are different to say, now look carefully because here's what you're supposed to learn that. And and so they're, they're very consciously, I believe put together so that the reader will pay attention and say, Oh, we're supposed to read these together. And, And so the Hebrew Bible is, is very much in conversation with itself and especially the later documents or the, the later elements with the earlier ones. And what we consider the, the key books, the, foundational, the fundamental books of the Hebrew Bible are the, are the five books of Moses. So what we would call the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because this really sets up, I I guess you could say the stage on which everything else is taking place. You know, you have God creating the world and then God creating a covenant and tracking the covenant through this people that he's chosen and the rules of the covenant. And that's essentially, if you want to say very summarized, what happens in the five books of Moses. Well, and in, in some ways, then the tracking of that covenant is the rest of the scripture, the rest of scripture. But yeah, you're right. It's it's set up in, in the Pentateuch or the Torah. Yes. And so so I'm kind of starting with a broader idea before I focus in on Isaiah Connecto, just to, so that you understand, I guess, my methodology, the way I'm approaching this. So what I've done, and this is where it's going to be just a little bit technical for about 10 sentences, and then I can get more into what I'm finding. So what I've done is I've looked at every single instance of the root ezer, which is help, and neged, which is it's what's translated as meat or sufficient. Um, I've looked at every single occurrence of both of those throughout the entire Hebrew Bible. 
and I have looked at the context surrounding each occurrence and identified themes in those contexts, um, which I can then take and apply to the Genesis account to say which of these nuances apply to the Genesis account, because not, not every single one will. Um, and I found some very strong themes and some really, really interesting, juicy nuances that we can look in for this phrase. Uh, and so that's kind of what I would like, I would like to, to talk about a few of those and how they can change the way we read the passage, the way we understand it. Um, so one of the really interesting themes, it was the first one that jumped out to me that was so unexpected is the idea of military aid. So Ezer, huh. especially in narrative, um, almost every single occurrence occurs in overt context of military conquest or war. So we're oh. not talking about, can you please send me help to like prune my vineyard? Or can you send me help to build my house? This is, can you send me military aid because these kings over here have formed a coalition and we're in danger? That's so um, interesting because, you know, I, I, I did this just uh, when I first started teaching uh, Old Testament. I, I just looked in the, uh, you know, the standard lexicons or which is like a dictionary at what does Ezra mean? And it just says help. And it's clear. It's not like a superior helping an inferior. It's just help. But it's not until you do a, a really detailed word study like you're doing that you start to see uh, more richly the way that the culture thought of and used the word. So that's a really fascinating insight. And, and then once we get out of narrative, we get into like prophetic and poetic literature. Mm -hmm. It generally is, you could call it implied military aid. For example, it will be saying, if you don't repent, then here's what's going to happen. And it's describing the aftermath of conquest. Right. So your, your cities will be destroyed. Your orphans and widows will be wandering the street and people will be starving. And, and, and what it says, basically, there will be no help in that time or something along those lines. Yes. Yeah, and, which and, is tied to the covenant, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is very much like a covenant. Yeah, because the covenant says, I will help you when you're in need. And so in those, those prophetic uh, warnings, it sounds like you're saying this is when he says, well, when this, this thing is happening, I am not going to help you. Yeah, it, it, sometimes it's, I am not going to help you. And other times it's, if you don't listen, this is going to help happen. And then who will help you? Me, oh, it, right. it, the implication is, I was the only person that could help you to begin with. This is God speaking. Right. And if you deny me, if you reject me, there's not going to be anybody else. There's right. not so, another God come out of the woodwork to, to deliver you, sort of thing. Uh, fascinating stuff. So yeah, keep the covenant and you, you get the Ezra. Don't keep the covenant. There's no Ezra or no help. That's, that's yeah. really interesting. So wow, what, what fascinating stuff you're doing. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to take it a step further also because good, good. next also frequently occurs in military contexts. And so I started thinking how, I mean, we don't really think of, you know, woman and man coming together and there's this military aid sort of going on, which is so present in the Hebrew. Um, but when we come to the Genesis account, and here's where, I guess, is where my interpretation comes into play. This is not necessarily what is overtly happening in the account. I just want to be clear um, about what's really in the text and what I'm interpreting. Um, but I think there's a few different ways that we can take this sort of military overtone to it. Um, the first being, um, I think a lot of times we hear, at least I've heard, 
about this idea of sort of brotherhood that you get from men in arms, you know, they go to war and, Mm. and there's this loyalty and this idea that it doesn't matter what our backgrounds are. It doesn't matter whether I agree with you politically or whatever, they may disagree fundamentally on some things, but they are loyal to the death and they will, they will literally die for each other. This sort of unity, this loyalty that you have. And I think that inside of Ezer Konegdo, that's the idea is that there is absolute loyalty within this relationship and it doesn't actually matter whether you agree on every little detail what matters is that you've got each other's backs yeah uh, again you've got this kind of uh uh pact or or, or uh, agreement kind of a, a overtone to that that is part of joining any military and and then uh, it becomes so very real when you're put under the stress of uh of battle. So that that's what forges actually forges the bond that you've agreed to. Yes. Yes. Because the initial bond, if you don't do any, if, if you don't do anything after to continue to strengthen and forge it, it will, it will disintegrate. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. And then another thought, and this is kind of, um, this is at the point where I'm at in my research right now is looking deeply at the Genesis words um, surrounding Ezer Connecto to sort of see what uh, additional parallels there are. And what's interesting is I, so I started looking for words in the Genesis account that have to do with, that have military connotations. And what I found that's really interesting is afterwards, so Adam and Eve partake of the fruit and, um, and then they become aware that they're naked, right? So this, mm-hmm. they become aware they're naked and they make, they take fig leaves and make aprons um and this word apron can also be translated girdle and i so i looked up all the usages of this word throughout the hebrew bible uh and the most frequent usages one is some sort of strap to bind something on and most frequently it is like armor or a sword or a shield interesting yes so again military context there and then the second most frequent usage of that word is as in sackcloth and ashes. It's what they use to bind on the sackcloth and ashes. So if we take this idea of, again, conflict, and then secondly, of mourning, because sackcloth and ashes is something that they would do when they were in mourning. Mm. And we apply that to the Genesis account. I think there's some interesting things we start seeing here because you have these two people who are in a relationship who have been living really this very innocent idyllic lifestyle. They don't really know. I think conflict at this prior to this point or good from evil, right? Before they took the fruit, but you start seeing this awareness that there's conflict now. And maybe we're feeling vulnerable, that nakedness We're we're aware of our vulnerability with each other. And in a sense, we're wanting to cover that up, which is a natural thing. When we feel vulnerable with other people, we want to put on layers, right? We want to protect ourselves. And so I think when we talk about human relationships, we're already seeing this here in the Genesis account with this idea, we've got to cover ourselves up because initially when it says before, before the serpents introduced, it says the man and the woman were naked in front of, and, and they were not in shame, ashamed. Right. And the word they use for shame in the Hebrew is this um, reciprocal. It's in the reciprocal case. It's what they call hikpael. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't reflexive yeah. in front of each other. Right. And, and it wasn't just that they felt no shame, but it's in front of each other. They were vulnerable and they were not 
embarrassed by that. Right. And, and then you find this vulnerability later and this shame and this embarrassment. And so trying to cover that up and, and I think, and, and I think that if we bring in the sackcloth part of this, there's this sort of sorrow that they realize they've lost some of this, this innocence, the simplicity that came with that innocence and realizing that things are going to get a lot more complicated. Um, but I think that it's important to remember that conflict in itself is not bad. Like they're seeing this conflict. It's what we do with conflict because conflict can be destructive, but conflict can also be constructive. Yeah. It's when, when we're looking or we're seeing a new way of seeing things, we're going to take these two different ideas and put them to, and sometimes compromise and find a new way to go. Right. I, I do think an excellent, sorry, what, I, I feel like you've got thoughts. So one more thing. No, and then, no, 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 no. Um, but I do feel like an excellent example of that is what we see with the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in the First Presidency, where you have these men who come from hugely different backgrounds. And I don't, I don't think that when they get in a room that one of them says something, President Nelson says, well, I'm thinking we should do this. And they all automatically go, 100%, we agree. No, no, they've been clear that that's not what happens. <laughs> right. That there's a lot of discussion and maybe one of them disagrees strongly and then they talk about it. And I, and the final product they've come out with is better because there was conflict and they right. choose constructive rather than destructive. Yeah, that's exactly I, I've heard uh, uh, them and others talk about that. And I, I think you've described the process uh, exactly correctly that uh, uh, not, not necessarily. Yeah. I think that that's even better than, saying uh, no contention, although I think that, that, I mean, President or Elder Uchtdorf has talked about that a little bit recently, but I think you're right. I love those phrases, uh, destructive or constructive uh, disagreement or conflict. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, there's just so many exciting things in the text. I can, I can go on. I can move on to another one unless you had other comments that you wanted to well, no, I mean, I, I have some stuff I'd love to ask you, but I want to give you the chance to talk about it before I, I, yeah, I sure. ask those questions. So, yeah, keep going. Yeah. So so that was the first one that really jumped out to me was the sort of this military context. Um, the second one that really the second context that really jumped out was this idea of prosperity, mm. um, which I so I put in a whole bunch of different things that I was looking for with prosperity. So if there's plenty of money, if there's plenty of food, if they are in a stable enough society that they're building large buildings like palaces or temples, mm. um, if there are many children, if there are women who are not widows, these sorts of mentions I, I included under my prosperity tag. Right. And what was- Which again story? has a really direct covenant tie. That's one of the covenant promises, right? Which the Book of Mormon highlights particularly well, but it's in the Old Testament very strongly as well. So anyway, sorry, keep going. Yeah. So, and what I found was that when Ezer, when this type of help is present, you have prosperity. Mm. There's plenty. People are not starving. Uh, when uh. they come, you're not overwhelmed in battle. You don't have orphans who are starving. All of these things come with, with this type of help. And when this type of help is not there, you have the opposite. You have famine and destruction and widows and orphans and starving and and death, death is another very common one that comes in, um, and exile and conquest and all of these things that I would say are the opposite of prosperity. So when you don't have Ezer, you have destruction right. and prosperity. When you do have Ezer, everything works, everything flourishes. Um, that's, that's interesting because, uh, and I, I think we should, 
uh, maybe give a little caveat here uh, because after the fall, of course, death is inevitable. So you're always going to have widows and orphans. But the, right. the point seems to be that when you don't have this help, then the uh, maybe we could almost say the the after effects of the fall, the uh, all of the terrible things that happen, whether that be military conflict, whether that be disease, whether that be famine, whatever else it is, you get a much higher rate of widows and orphans, an overwhelming amount of widows and orphans. Society, the way their society worked is in, if things are working well, then you're in a position to take care of the widows and orphans. But uh, when there is too much, there are fewer people that do the caring and more people that need care. And it overwhelms the the system that was built in to to care for them. And so I think that's, is that what you're kind of saying there is that it's in this context that you have more widows and orphans, more of all these things that are kind of part of life, but it, it's increased so much that it gets past the the sustainability point almost as it were. Yes. Um, yes. And also that you have the reason you're having more widows and orphans is because usually you're having some sort of foreign conquest, like right. the king of Assyria or Egypt or right. some foreign power who is coming and just laying waste. Right. And so all of your, fighting age men and maybe others who, you know, beyond fighting age have all been slaughtered. And so you've lost the huge portion of your working force to maintain society. Right. And so society is completely crumbling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it could be, I think you're right that most of the time it's going to be the military conflict. It can be something like famine, right. Or even, even in the simple story of uh, Ruth's story, where uh, there's a famine, and it doesn't say that's why, but somehow in association with and during this famine, all of the men in that family died, right? Um, so there's, it, it's in this, historically, we see it happening, or at least it's recorded more often as a, a military conquest, but it can be all sorts of conquests that are, are not, they can be the, the acts of nature or of mankind. Yes, Absolutely. And, and I think if we take this back again to the Genesis account, this idea of prosperity versus, I don't know, anti-prosperity, mm-hmm. um, I think it really says a lot about what the marriage relationship is meant to be mm-hmm. and man and woman together. Uh, that this, this really to, to push against, you know, hundreds of years of interpretation, this is not the man who's like, I'm in charge and the woman is going to like do anything I want. This is. We have the man who clearly has divine potential and responsibilities and commissions even to fulfill. And you have the woman who has divine responsibilities and potentials and commissions that she is filled with divine power also. And you don't actually get the synergy of this unless they're working together. So if there's either one of them who's saying, well, this is my responsibility. So you do this you don't get the synergy. You have to have the two coming together and a free gift, a free giving, a free a gift of love, really. Right. That, that sort of prosperity that follows because we find uh, in later on in the account, when, when the men are taken out of the figure and if you have only the women that, as their connecto, then you have widows and orphans and famine. Mm. Right. But likewise, and there are, there are biblical accounts that as you read it by looking at the way that the men treat the women, if they do not treat the women well, when we take the women out of the figure, 
we still have war and conquest and loss, right? So, so there has to be this partnership. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you kind of see that maybe more in the book of judges than anywhere else, but um, <laughs> that's, that's interesting. Huh? Well, interesting. So I, I, I don't want to take away um, the punch from any conclusions that you want to make. So I, I, I'm making some conclusions, but if you want to make a couple of conclusions first, then, then go ahead. And I'm not meaning concluding like we're done talking, but conclusions from that. Go, go ahead and make those if you want. And then uh, I've got some stuff I'm, I'm, that's just falling together for me in a wonderful way here. So uh, I'm excited. So uh, do you have some further conclusions you'd like to make there? Um, I, I have so many. This is why I'm writing a dissertation right, on right. it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Small and narrow. Um, I just, as I'm, I guess, one of my big takeaways as I've been studying this is that in the Genesis text itself, in the Hebrew itself, this text is not actually like when I, okay, backtrack a little. If you want to edit, edit that little stuttering bit out, that's fine. Um, when I first approached it, I didn't even realize it, but I was approaching it kind of with this modern mindset of what gender roles, what I think gender roles should be and what they shouldn't be. And the sort of this conversation we have about gender roles. And that was the way I was approaching the text. Right. And what I'm discovering is that that text, the way it's written, it is not even inside that conversation, inside the conversation of what, what's the man's place as, you know, ruling or the woman's place as supporting or whatever, any of the, any of the prior conversation we've had around gender roles is not actually what's happening in the Hebrew. The, what is happening in the Hebrew is this conversation about interpersonal relationships yeah. and how to make a relationship work. And as such, you can apply that. Yes, it's written specifically for the marriage relationship between a man and a woman, but the principles that it's talking about are applicable in any relationship between sisters, between brothers, between friends who may male, female, whatever. It does not matter the combination of gender, whether, you know, in order to make this relationship work, this is about how do you make a successful relationship that brings prosperity and life and joy where, where you are. Uh, that's right. You're, you're, you're going to make this, uh, I mean, I always was always familiar with this phrase, but now you're making Ezra Connecto like one of my favorite phrases. I'm going to, I'm going to tell some people, yeah, all right. I'm your Ezra Connecto. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this, right? Uh, uh, because I'm starting to understand this differently. This is beautiful stuff. And I think you're right. This, uh, you, it's after it's, it's much after, uh, well, it's, it's separated in the text fairly distinctly. These ideas that we get, uh, okay, well, the, the man's going to work by the sweat of his brow and the woman will bring forth children in sorrow and these kinds of things. So those, some of those things that we often associate with, with gender are a completely separate part of the text, story, conversation, everything else that, that, that then Ezra Connecto, they're, they're, they're two different things. And I think that's really worth noting, which I'm not sure I've always consciously realized until now. So that, thank you for that. Yeah. It's, it's because people usually bring them up in terms of uh, when I get questions from students about the phrase, help me, it's usually in a conversation uh, uh, that includes these other questions about, oh, you're going to look to your husband and uh, or your longing will be to your husband and, and you'll bring forth children in sorrow. And uh, it, so it usually becomes part of these gendered conversations, but you're right. It's not. Actually, what's interesting is that you have, it almost feels like there's been a chapter break yeah. um, after it was created because in the Hebrew, you know, it says 
it's good, not good for the human to be alone. Let's make a help meet as our connecto for him. And then in doing that, then it says, okay, we're going to bring the human needs to name all the animals, which seems a little bit random, but actually I would argue that it, this is the man needs to have enough awareness that they're alone. There's not, there's not interesting. So I don't think this is just, what are you going to name this? Well, there we've got Bob and Lucy and like, no, this is, what am I going to name this? Okay. This animal crawls on the ground and it's squishy and soft and eats dirt. And okay. Worm. I now understand worm and, you know, so understanding. And then it's after that, that it says, and the, the human saw that there was no, there, there was no correspondent. There was no, as their connecto for the human. Mm. And then God creates the woman. Okay. And, and there, and it says, this is your, as our connector, you're meant to be one. Then it's like chapter break. Now the serpent was more cunning or right. naked and words than any other beast of the field. And then it goes on and it continues the, the story. And then all of the bit about bearing in sorrow and, you know, work by the sweat of your brow for your bread, all that's at the way other end of the, it's the very, very yeah. end, right? before born. And so it really kind of, I mean, yes, we can, we can certainly read it in light of as our but it is not contextually next to the Ezer Connecto passage. No. It's really kind of separate in the narrative arc. If, if yeah, then that's that's a good way of putting it in the narrative arc. Or if we were to consider this a a play or something like that, it's in a different scene altogether, right? Uh, it's it's part of the creation scene. Not the Ezer Connecto is part of the creation scene, whereas the, those gendered roles are part of the fall scene. Or we, I mean, we're even at the stage of uh, acts, right? I mean, that, that, those are two completely different acts in the play uh, or in the narrative uh, sequence. So that's interesting. And and I've your insights about the naming of animals is so fascinating because I've always just only thought of it in terms of, uh, well, this is part of man having dominion over the world, including beasts and, and, and knowing the name of something and understanding its nature has always been uh, from their ancient, uh, that ancient cultural context that, uh, you can't really control something until you know it, can name it, and understand it, right? And so I've always thought of that in terms of uh, just man having dominion over the earth, which I think it, I still think that's applicable. But I, I think in terms of what you're talking about, that's a fascinating insight, and, and it seems absolutely correct to me that uh, it, it, he also has to come to really understand all of these things and how they work to recognize, wait a minute, this isn't working for me right now. Uh, that uh, how, how come I'm not like that, and and why am I missing something? And and maybe I'll just throw in one other thing, and you can tell me if you uh, if I'm if I'm reading you correctly here. Uh, but just for our audience, uh, Rebecca keeps saying, you know, when the human is created, or is it good for a human to be alone? In in Hebrew, um, the word uh, for man, there is no, there, there is a distinct word for for woman. But there isn't a distinct word for man. It's used either for for male gender, gender, or and you'll see this is actually true in English as well as I say this for the male gender or for mankind, right? We don't have a way of saying mankind that doesn't have man in it. Same thing with human and so on. And that's uh, some people would argue well that's because it's all male oriented and so on. Um, I think it's actually just a linguistic thing. Uh, it, you get the same thing where. If I'm going to give a, a plural of they or you, uh, if it's all women, you can distinguish that. But you cannot distinguish it if it's all 
men because uh, the, you give the plural for mixed genders as the same. And so there's, there is a way of saying women that, that is not possible for men. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's more linguistic than it is anything else. But uh, there are probably some cultural elements. I don't know. You can argue all sorts of different sides of whether it's positive or negative or anything else. I don't know. But, but anyway, in any case, I think you've been saying humankind because, and I think that's a really legitimate way of reading this. There is no other way to, of saying human than using this word that we have decided to translate as man, but human is a very legitimate and I think probably more realistic way of translating this. Am I reading you correctly there? Yes, mostly. Um, okay. I might um, I might add a couple nuances to what you've said. Good. So the word in Hebrew, so you do have a word for man, which is ish, and the oh, yeah. word for woman is okay. But actually in the creation narrative, it never says ish. It yeah. says adam. Ha, it means the, and Adam literally just means hum, like human being. Yeah. Adam also is the word that gets translated as Adam. Right. So you have times in the narrative where it's saying Ha Adam, which would be the human, and Adam without Ha, which would be Adam. It seems to be functioning as a name. And when it says it is not good for Ha Adam to be alone, it is not good for the human to be alone. Um. Now, another, to kind of build on this, um, okay, now what I'm about to say, don't take it too far, all right? All right. Not, what I think is interesting is that when it first says, because there's two times it says that God created the, the man and the woman, right? The male and the female. And the first time it says God created Ha-Adam, the human, and he created male and female, Okay which seems that it may be pointing to say God created this being that is male and female and it's the human, but this is clearly not the final form because the human goes and realizes how Adam goes and names all the animals and says, wait, all the animals have two and I'm only one. And then God says, okay, great. You've realized this. Now we're going to separate. You have the Isha, the woman taken out and separated from Ha-Adam. Mm. And then we have these two. And, and then what's interesting is when you have this idea that originally they were completely unified in one being, and then when they're created and the, and the emphasis is this is Isha because she's taken out of the human and you are supposed to be unified. Man should leave his father and mother and cleave to the woman and they should be one. And Adam then says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and we will be one. It's this idea. We, we came from being one being, and now we're two, but we have to be one again. And so it's this very, you could almost say mystical, but I think it's real way that, and this, this is where I would say it is very specific to gender, that the genders are supposed to become united. And you, certainly you can say this through intercourse, through marital relations, but I think there is also very similar to when God says, or Christ says, I and my father are one, or when he prays, right. I want all of these people to be one in me as I am in you. There's this idea of unity uh, that the man and woman are supposed to achieve because they were initially created as being one entity and that now they have to come back together. Uh, that's that's fascinating. And the symbolism behind all of this, you know, it's hard to know 
what's literal and what's symbolic, but it's always symbolic, whether it's literal or not. And, and, and the symbolism, anything too far, right? Yeah, like yeah. I'm not, yeah, no, I, I understand that. Uh, and I'm trying to reinforce you on that, but, um, and, but I think there, it's always symbolic, always, always, always symbolic. And so, um, the symbolism here is, is fantastic. And, and, uh, even as you said, I remember, uh, I was a freshman the year, uh, that then president of BYU, president Holland gave the talk of soul symbols and sacraments where he talks about, well, uh, intercourse or, or uh, uh, union is a symbol. Right. It's it's only a symbol of what is really supposed to be happening, the the full unity. And I think that's part of what you're talking about, this idea that that we have to come back together in a unified way, just like our mortal probation is really aimed at us coming back together to be with God uh, as we once were, but in a higher state so that we can be even more together than we were before, which I suspect is what's happening with humanity as well. Uh, men and women. And so that's, that's, that's beautifully said. And I think that what God is wanting is a unity filled with awareness. I don't know if that makes sense where you're yeah. aware of, whereas before there is ever a division or separation, there's no awareness of what real unity is because you don't mm. know we're coming here with opposition, you know, like in a second Nephi, if you're not aware of what division is like, then you cannot fully comprehend or utilize the power of what true unity is like. That's beautiful and powerful. Now, now let me just uh, tell you some insights that I've gained as you've been talking about Kinegdo, and you can you can tell me if I'm wrong or uh, or whatever. But uh, and and I'll t- I'll start out by just saying how I've typically taught it and understood it, and how I, it's magnified now. So. Uh, I mean, I've, I've just kind of torn apart the different parts of the word, right? So Ezra is help. And as I said, it, it doesn't mean necessarily one more powerful than the other, though, in this covenant context, when we're talking about God, it certainly does. Um, but kinegdo is actually a, a prefix, a word, and a suffix, right? So the, the key is a prefix that uh, we translate as because, like, as, all, all sorts of things uh, like that. Um, and then as you've said, neged, uh, or neged is what it is without the prefix and suffix on it. So um, neged is um, typically is like kind of like uh, in front of or something along those lines, but uh, it, it's difficult to translate in this context that way, but I think it works. And then O is just sticking the hymn on the end. That's how they do it on the, uh, in Hebrew is you just put the, 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 uh, uh, people, you know, the, uh, it, it, anyway, it's just a way of saying him, right? H-I-M, not him right. as in singing, but H-I-M. Yeah. So literally this word means uh, help according uh, or, or like or as, but I'll just say according, uh, according to what is in front of him, right? And so I've always understood this to be uh, that Adam is not equal to the task that lies in front of him without Eve, and Eve is not equal to the task that lies in front of her without Adam. And, and I still kind of like that, but I've got an enhanced view of that, given, given what you're saying, because uh, now I think about in terms of, uh, and, and of course, this happens before the fall, is they're, they're given each other as a help me before the fall. But um, in terms of once the fall happens, uh, really, they have a battle in front of them, that life is going to be a battle. It's a conflict with the fall, their, fall, their own fallen natures and with the fallen world and environment around them. And honestly, we are not going to survive that battle without help from God and without help from each other. 
and most especially without help from our spouse, but but uh, from each other, right? So it's all these covenant re- relationships that we talk about. First covenant relationship, you're not going to make it through this battle without help from God. And the primary form of that is going to be a son, Jesus Christ, but it comes in all sorts of ways. And Christ is involved in all of those ways. Um, you're also not going to make it without this covenant relationship we have with each other, right? And sometimes we forget we're in a covenant community. Uh, we are not going to survive this if we don't help each other in our covenant community. I think it's part of why we take the sacrament together. I think it's part of why we go to the temple together, all sorts of other things. There's this horizontal relationship. Um, and that's true. And, and I think let's be clear about this. Even So let's just forget about spouses right now. Uh, in a ward or a ward council or anything like that, if you have all female voices and no male voices or all male voices and no female voices, you're going to have a problem. Now, in some settings, that's appropriate, right? That's fine. Uh, If the Relief Society is just meeting, I'm not saying that we should never have meetings where women can meet together and men can meet together. And I'm not saying that, but, um, but I think if we're trying to run a ward and we uh, are not having both genders involved, we are not equal to the conflict that lies ahead of us. And we won't receive the help that we need and the famines and the battles of this world will consume us. And I think that that's going to become true in a family setting uh, as well. And in the, in the family setting, you need both. And if, if not, you're not equal to what lies in front of you uh, in just getting along in life. If all of my friends were men and I had no women friends, I'm not equal to the battle that lies in front of me and, and vice versa for you and so on. I can just see so many ways this works, but, but what you've, uh, kind of, I, I guess some of this uh, military and uh, plague and 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 so on uh, emphasis that you've given me helps clarify it for me that we need this to be able to receive the help from God, but also from each other that will enable us to survive the battles that are part of this fallen world. So I don't know if you think I'm like off in left field or what your thoughts are on that. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think that as we continue looking at scripture going forward, we see that we see that when the community is functioning properly together, then the heavens are opened, right? right. They, they get all the things they need. And when the community is not functioning properly, then horrible things happen. And I think that um, there's this scripture in DNC that I really love where it says, I'm going to botch it. It's going to be so paraphrased, but uh, he says, you are, you are perfect. And I speak to you collectively and not individually. Right. That individually we all make mistakes and, but God has commanded us. He said, be, be perfect. Like I'm perfect. And I don't think that that is possible in this life for us individually, but we can be collectively perfect. We can keep that commandment as we come together with our communities. And we, we see this in the new Testament over and over Christ is looking to build communities. He's looking mm-hmm. for people to come together, to look out for each other, to forgive each other, to build these bonds that that help us. It's like the network where if each person is connected to a net going out. Even if the one person falls, they never fall all the way because all of the strands connecting them to their community hold them up. Uh, like nobody falls tracks when we have this. And and I and I actually had not put that together as a community thing until you said that coming back to Ezra Connecto, the Ezra Connecto really is the beginning of community formation. Yes. Uh, this is how, 
um, as I believe it was Joseph Smith who said, you know, um, was it salvation is an individual thing, but exaltation is a, is a family or a community thing yes. that we have to have each other if we want to really climb the ladder, if we want to unlock all of the achievements, so to speak, you know, all of having the heavens opened, we only do that together. That's uh, so fascinating. And as you said that, I've, I've thought of another element of this, which is, uh, as we've said, of course, we are not going to make this uh, if without help, that, that vertical help, that help from God, right? Uh, we need the Ezra from God, the aid of the divine warrior, and so on and so on. Um, but you don't get really get access to that power if you're not having that communal help. And it reminds me of that story that I'm sure we've all heard, but uh, when Joseph Smith wants to translate and uh, he's had an argument or something like that with Emma that morning, and he tries to translate and he just can't, and he can't, and he can't, and he goes out to pray. And then he comes in uh, kind of having learned something would see him and he apologizes to Emma and then he can sit down and he's able to translate. And, uh, and it, it just gives you, it's a wonderful illustration of this idea that if you don't have these horizontal uh, helping each other relationships correct, if you're not really helping and working in a true covenant community manner horizontally with each other, that you're not going to get the full help vertically from God. And, and that's really what the covenant is all about. And, and uh, I'd never recognize all those covenant elements of uh, Ezra Kinegdo. So thank you very much for that. And I do think as you're talking about this sort of horizontal vertical, um, it makes me think, maybe I mentioned this in our last discussion for the podcast, but there in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis in his chapter on the Godhead, um, and he talks about the Holy Ghost. Now, granted, C.S. Lewis writes this chapter arguing for the Trinity as, you know, the three in one. And that's fine. Our, Our doctrine doesn't agree with that. Nevertheless, he still has some gems in that chapter. And he talks about the Holy Ghost as being this connective factor. The Holy Ghost is what connects Christ to Jesus and it's what connects us to God. And, and so I kind of started running with this idea that the Holy Ghost is the great connector mm. and changed the way I thought about baptism and confirmation. Because yes, when we're baptized and confirmed, we create this covenant relationship with God where we have a literal tie to God, right? A, a, a band that's connecting us. However, especially in the New Testament, it often talks about being baptized into a community. Yes. So you're baptized into the body of Christ, into the community of believers. And I started thinking, what's one of the big things that happens once you get the Holy Ghost? You start having more thoughts about others. Like, I just can't stop thinking about I don't know, Sister Jones today. So finally, I give her a call and find out that she needs help and I can go reach out. And I think that that is the Holy Ghost doing its function, serving its function as the connector that we are connected to one another through the Holy ghost. And so when we have the Holy ghost manifesting in our lives, it will serve to strengthen our connections with God and with those around us, because that's part of our function on earth is to build relationships and communities. Absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the, uh, another one of the main roles of the Holy ghost is to uh, fill us with charity. Um, and, and that's that hugely connective element in, in this. So it's not just to, to direct us to, uh, what person to serve, like Sister Jones, but it's at the same time to fill us with a great love for Sister Jones and uh, for each other, and and connect us in that way. And so, yeah, you're right. This is a, this is such powerful, wonderful stuff. And it also fills us with the love for God, right? Uh, I mean, that's our great obligation is to love God. But 
I love God more when I have the spirit with me. I'm capable of loving him more and I'm capable of loving those around me more when the spirit is with me. And so that's, that's that connective element you're talking about. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, this is just, it's always so fun to talk to you. We're going to have to do this again sometime, but we'll, we'll give you a break for a little while, let you finish your dissertation and so on. But uh, this is fascinating. So I hope that everyone listening now, even though in the other interview, I said, you can look forward to us uh, talking about Ezra Kinegno, but now I recognize that uh, they'll have to look back on that if they do this in the order I'm eventually going to get them posted. Um, but um, th- they can look back on it. But uh, at this point, we're going to ask them to look forward to that second interview uh, because this one has been so much fun. And it should be clear to you by now that there are a lot of great things to look forward to hearing from uh, Rebecca on in the future. And what I am convinced will be a fantastic and wonderful career of uh, educating all sorts of people, but I hope uh, especially the saints and um, just uh, fantastic stuff. So thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you, Carrie. It's been my pleasure. Well, wonderful. It's been mine as well. So we'll uh, also thank our, our listeners uh, for, or viewers, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube before, Uh, being part of this and encourage you if you uh, were edified by this to let other people know about it. I think there are a lot of people who could really be helped by this particular conversation. There's a lot of healing that needs to happen in the world on this issue. And uh, if you know anyone who could benefit from this, make sure they're aware of it, like, share, subscribe. I don't know what all those metrics are, what all these, I'm not a guru on that, but what I do want is for more people to feel the power of the scriptures and to have the scriptures become real. And and I guess I should tie this all back into that a little bit in that uh, for me, when I hear Rebecca talking about this in a covenant relationship, uh, which I hadn't thought of before, it suddenly becomes more real for me, right? Because I can recognize, oh, how authentic that is to the ancient world, but also how authentic it is to my life my relationships and what's going on for me and i hope that it's become more real for everyone else and you've seen how this can apply to your life and that then we can share the word with others as much as possible we just want to help as many people drop their power from the scriptures as possible so uh thank you and uh, have a wonderful time studying from the scriptures thank you rebecca thank you